Hey everyone, welcome back for another Halloween countdown episode. Today, I'm going to talk about Victorian death customs and an amazing location called the Dalnavert Museum in Winnipeg, Manitoba. This is really such a cool location because they observe some of these death customs at their museum, usually in October, which also happens to be a beautiful Victorian mansion. So I hope you find this as fascinating as I do. Um, I wanted to do a quick shout out to Caitlin, who works at the museum. Thank you so much, Caitlin, for chatting with me. And also, please remember to check out my social media posts for today so you can enter to win one of the two prize packs that I'm giving away on October 31st. So you can find those at Real Scary Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Now let's get into the episode. The Dalnavert Museum is a beautiful Victorian mansion designed by Charles Wheeler and constructed in 1895. It was constructed for Sir Hugh John Macdonald, son of Canada's first Prime Minister. The home was built for $10,000, which at the time was about 10 times the cost of the average home. Hugh lived in this home with his wife Agnes, daughter from his first marriage Daisy, and his son Jack. Hugh passed in 1929, and Agnes sold the home. Agnes was a prominent socialite in the community and was not without her own health complications. She had two strokes in the home and had a live-in nurse named Hattie who helped take care of her. Now, Agnes did pass in 1940. Hugh was married to a woman named Jean King, with whom he had a daughter named Daisy. Jean passed in 1881. Daisy was well-traveled and highly educated, but also described as an unconventional woman for the time. She enjoyed fencing and shooting and she even dabbled in acting in the early 1900s. She married and had two children, passing away in 1959, and was buried with her father, stepmother, and half-brother. So sadly, Hugh's son Jack had a tough life. He was diagnosed with diabetes at a young age. He had a life of health issues. In the Victorian times, there was no cure, really, or a proper treatment for people with diabetes. So we actually saw this in my Halloween episode last year when I talked about the Prince House. One of the wives unfortunately had diabetes and due to this passed away. The McDonald's tried everything to help their son. The McDonald's were willing to do anything that they could to help their son and to curb his suffering. Jack lived a very sheltered life, but an eventful one. He was actually an avid rower and some of his trophies are still on display at the Dalnavert today. He did attend college with hopes of becoming involved in law like his father and grandfather, but unfortunately, he passed away at the age of 21 before finishing his degree. The home was a boarding house for a while and passed through many other hands before being sold to the Manitoba Historical Society. They turned this beautiful home into a museum in the 1970s, restoring it to its former glory. So while the home didn't see anything of considerable tragedy, A home as old as this certainly has some interesting quirks. Many do believe that it is haunted. So I spoke with Caitlin about this, and though she hadn't been working at the museum for long, she had heard of the haunting activity. She personally said she hadn't had any experiences herself, but she did tell me a couple of stories that she's heard. 
She said that a common thing is that people will feel very strange in Jack's room. The feelings range from headaches to stomach pain and a feeling of being watched. Now, they believe that some of these feelings could be some of the very things that Jack felt as a result of his illness. She did say that she personally hasn't felt any of those things, but in fact, quite the opposite in his room. She says that she's always felt warmth in there and would not hesitate to choose that room to spend a night alone in. Now, a coworker had strange dreams and weird experiences, but she says refuses to speak about it. She has also heard of people witnessing objects moving. And another story she shared with me was about a group of authors who stayed at the museum for a writing workshop. Coming back a couple of months later, they read the stories that they had written. She said that the authors reported some strange experiences. One of the most notable was that a couple of them witnessed a book's pages flipping in front of them. Now this, along with those infamous feelings of being watched. Now along with all of this, the museum does some really cool things. They hold seances, tours that showcase Victorian death customs, as I mentioned. They also offer different lecture series, like one that I saw about Victorian death photography. So please be sure to check out their website for some of these amazing events. I wish I lived closer because I feel like I would be there all the time. (laughs) They also have this really cool program to get people to donate to the museum where you can adopt an artifact. So that's such a cool idea. So anyone else listening that is working at a museum, you should think about this. Such a neat idea. So I will have everything linked on the blog for anyone interested. This October, our friends over at The Haunted Walk are inviting you to take part in a massive paranormal experiment. The Haunting at Home is an online interactive audio experience you can do in your own home, apartment, or creepy cabin in the woods. This ghostly adventure will challenge you to conduct a series of paranormal experiments in the dark. It's the perfect night of spooky fun if you love ghost stories or enjoy the thrill of trying to contact the other side. So grab a group of friends and follow the program. Will you make it to the end or will you have to pull the safety hatch? I had the pleasure of testing this out earlier this week and I did end up pulling the safety hatch, but the best thing about this is that you have an unlimited access for 90 days. So you can try and try again. I highly recommend this as something to do this spooky season. It's $34.99, and if you use the promo code REALSCARY, R-E-A-L-S-C-A-R-Y, you will get 20% off. Simply visit hauntedwalk.com slash thehaunting and click buy now. Out of the first 36 experiments conducted last month, 86% of groups experienced activity and 14% had to use the safety hatch. You might be thinking, well, my house isn't haunted. It doesn't have to be. All you need is a quiet place, a few other supplies, and an open mind. Will you connect with a spirit or will your imagination simply get the best of you? Happy haunting, everyone. So that brings us to Victorian death customs. I personally find this so interesting. So for the last bit of the episode, I will be talking about the customs for this time period. This whole era was inspired by Queen Victoria as she grieved over the death of Prince Albert. 
She wore black until her own passing years later. Now, everything sort of snowballed, and this created a certain set of standards for people on how they would conduct themselves with their own grief and preparing their loved one to depart properly and to arrive at the proper destination. It's important also to note that during this time, there was a high mortality rate for everyone, really, but especially for children. It was around 50%. So people found themselves pretty constantly faced with the deaths of loved ones. Another important thing to note is that there were some fears that ran rampant during this time. The first was of being buried alive. This was sadly kind of unbelievably, but very common as people would perhaps fall into a vegetative state and would be believed dead, only to be found later moved in their coffin or with other indications that they were not dead. I read a couple stories about fingernail markings inside of the coffins and things like that. Now, the other fear was of grave robbers who would often sell the bodies to medical schools for cadavers. So families were, of course, terrified of their loved ones being looted and the possibility that it could affect their final rest. I recently listened to an episode of the podcast Medical Murders. I believe it was the third episode and part one of the H.H. Holmes episodes. And they said that he actually may have gone with his medical mentor to loot bodies to practice on. So that's just a little tidbit that I thought was kind of disturbing and For those of you who don't know what H.H. Holmes ended up becoming, (laughs) um, definitely look into that. So keep these fears in mind during the rest of the show. So let's start with the death. As I've mentioned with some other cases we've talked about, it was very common for the body of the deceased to remain in the home. It would be in the home that people would come for the actual service and the viewing Funeral homes at this time were really just for preparing the body, not for catering to the services that we see today. Custom dictated that someone must sit by the body at all times. This was for a few reasons. Number one, in case the person was not actually deceased. Number two, it was to comfort the dead as they transitioned into the afterlife. And three, it was to help the family. If they needed a break or they needed to step away, needed to sleep, whatever. And finally, it was also to make sure that someone was there to greet guests that were coming to pay their respects. Some might be traveling long hours and might be coming later at night. I also did read um, another one that said that it was also to make sure that there were no rats coming by the body. So that was, that was another thing too. Certain things would need to be done around the home as well. The mirrors would be covered as it was widely believed the dead could become trapped in them. I actually read another interesting fact that I've never heard before, but it was also believed by some that it was to prevent vanity during this time of mourning, as all of the attention should be on the person who passed and not on the living. Family photos were also covered or turned upside down or to face the wall. This was to ensure that the dead could not possess the living. Clocks would also be stopped to mark the time of passing. This was basically to honor the person that had passed. Now, the theory also behind this was that if the clock did not stop, the spirit would remain in the present and basically roam for all of eternity. Now, after the burial is when the clock would be permitted to start again. 
However, if it was the head of the house that was the one to pass, the clock was never to be started again. The next important part was the use of a material called crepe, which was a heavy silk and would either be black or white. So black crepe would sometimes be used in the covering of mirrors. It would be tied to a doorknob to let people know that the dark angel, death, had taken someone from the household. It was also a reminder to people visiting not to knock, as that would be very jarring to the people who are grieving inside. Many times the door was actually just left open so that people could come and go quietly. Now, white crepe was used in this instance to signify the passing of a young person or someone unmarried. So this will be seen throughout that white signified the extra loss of innocence. This crepe would also be used on stationery as well. Post-mortem death photography was a huge industry at this time. Photography was super expensive. So this was an expense that was worth it as this would many times be the only photograph they would have with the deceased person. The person would be put into a scene with other living family members to make it look as natural as possible. They might even sometimes be posed standing up or manipulated in other ways with the help of stands and clamps that would hold on to them. In some cases, realistic looking eyes would be painted on the closed eyelids. So I personally find postmortem photography really interesting to look at. I'll have some examples up on the blog for you to see, and some may find it very disturbing, um, which I understand. But I also think that you have to think of the intention behind it. And the fact, like I said, that many times this was the only image that families would have of their child or their father or their mother. So photography in this time took a long time. The shutter would stay open for longer than we're used to now. So subjects had to sit very still in order to get a clear image. But people would, of course, naturally just move slightly with breathing and with with things like that. And so sometimes it created a little bit of a blur. The deceased, however, were the perfect photography subjects. They are always crystal clear. So again, I'll have some images up on my blog. Now, after the funeral, these photos and all of the keepsakes would be put together in an album and much the same fashion as like a baby book nowadays. Something today that is associated with funerals are flowers and elaborate flower arrangements as a sign of paying respect to your loved one and to their family. There was another reason, however, back in the Victorian era. Flowers also served the important purpose of covering the smell of decay. Though embalming had been around for thousands of years already, it was far from perfect. So the flowers looked nice, but also could mask the sometimes putrid aroma. Now think of the time, no air conditioning, and depending on the time of year, high, high temperatures. So flowers in these cases would have been a godsend. For mourners coming into the home, if several members of a household had passed, entering guests would be required to wear a black ribbon, even animals coming into the home. The ribbon was a form of protection that would not allow death to spread outside of the home. After the funeral, there would be a formal meal. If a guest was not able to attend the meal, they would be given a special funeral cookie, 
So these would be wrapped in a paper with a prayer or information about the person who had passed. And it would again be wrapped with a black ribbon or white for kids. This is like funeral cards that are usually given out today and meant to be sort of like a keepsake. The funeral services would go a step further and provide tear vials to mourners. This was a small glass vial with a stopper, and during the funeral, the mourner would literally catch their tears in the bottle. Once the funeral was done, they would provide the family with the vial, and once the tears had dried in the vial, this was a sign that their mourning could cease. And it was also sort of a way to show the family how much you cared by how much you could fill your tear vial. Once it was time for transfer to the burial site, there was even a superstition as to how the body was removed from the home. The body was always taken from the home feet first. This was because if the body came out head first, they could see where the house was and be able to come back to haunt it. It was also believed that they could call out to other spirits or lure the living to their own deaths. The funeral procession was usually a black carriage holding the person with black or white horses. Or, as we mentioned before, if it was a child, it would be a white carriage with white ponies. Mourners would either walk behind or ride in carriages behind. So this is something we still do in a sense. A processional vehicles behind the hearse is pretty common. I'm sure you can imagine that the funerals and processions were a way for the upper class, as they took the opportunity with anything, to display their wealth. Many would spend money on rare plumes of ostrich feathers and would try to outdo each other with their displays. There were certain strict rules and timelines about the appropriate attire and length of time for mourning. This varied depending on the person's age, sex, and marital status. A woman who lost a husband was expected to become the embodiment of grief. She would be in mourning for at least two years. She must wear dark and muted colors during this time. A bonnet should consist of heavy crepe and be worn over the face for three months. After this, another veil would be required and would be worn for at least the rest of the two years. Some women, however, may never return to bright colors. It is also suggested that the transition from morning colors to regular, brighter colors had to be gradual. A widower, so a man who lost his wife, would only wear his mourning for a year, and this consisted of a black suit, gloves, tie, and a band on his hat. They were expected to marry pretty quickly because they needed a woman to run their household. So a man could get married during his mourning period. And I believe I read somewhere that the bride on the wedding day would have to wear black and then would have to go into mourning with the husband for the remainder of the time period. Parents could mourn their child for as long as desired. The minimum time was one year in deep mourning and one year in half mourning. Children would wear mourning clothing for a parent for one year deep mourning for nine months, and three and a half mourning. If a child's sibling passed away, they would be expected to be in mourning for six months, three in full and three and a half. So there are a lot of rules. <laughs> and they legitimately had handbooks and things like that with all of the rules and expectations. 
One more thing with the morning attire was the memento mori, which translates to remember that you have to die. Now these were personal mementos, usually jewelry, to remind the wearer of their loved one and also of their own mortality. And a quick note, um, none were to be worn during the first year. That was not allowed. So these would usually contain some of the deceased's hair, which would then be made into a brooch or even a piece of artwork. So I'll, again, have some of those examples up on the blog for you to see. And this is another thing that we kind of do nowadays. People wear ashes in jewelry and different things like that. So this is something that we still do to this day. Now, lastly, I want to talk about the business of death in the Victorian era. Going back to those fears that we talked about, the fear of being buried alive was so prevalent that people would put certain measures in place to ensure that they would be rescued in one way or another. For example, it was common for a bell to be rigged up with a cord that would go under the ground and into the coffin, either accessible or attached to the deceased's hand. This way, if they woke up in their coffin, they could pull on the cord and the bell at the top would ring. This would hopefully alert someone to their situation and they would be rescued. And now another thing that they would do, I assume this was probably the cheaper option, I guess, they would put a vial of poison in the deceased's hand. So if they woke, they could at least take the poison and not spend days suffering in fear and agony. So these were the most common solutions people had used, but there are definitely some other interesting graves out there. One that I will post on the blog is of a man named Dr. Timothy Clark Smith. His fear of being buried alive inspired him to have a 14 by 14 glass window installed at the top side of his grave that looked down six feet and into his coffin. So he was buried with the bell rig, just like we talked about, but he also wanted to be able to see the sky and to have people be able to look down and see him. So this is actually still here today, though through the years of wear, um, and it looks like a lot of condensation buildup, it's hard to see all the way down, but it's definitely something really, really cool. So if you're in the Vermont area, check that out. Another lucrative thing that we touched on was the grave robber fear. Medical schools were desperate at this time for cadavers, for training, and would pay good money for bodies. Now, because of this and the high mortality rate, business was booming. Resurrection men, as they came to be known, would actually not commonly loot the personal property of the deceased, like jewelry and things like that. Now, this is contrary to popular belief. I thought that's what they were doing as well, but they didn't because the penalty for stealing a body was far less than the penalty for looting belongings from the deceased. So common practice for the resurrection men was to burrow into the grave, tie a rope around the neck, and pull the corpse from the ground. They would then fill the hole, and no one would be the wiser. So because of this, there were methods that the family would take to ensure their loved one would remain undisturbed. The wealthy would build mausoleums as an actual fortress to keep these men out. Now, those who didn't have the means to do this would place flowers and small stones or mementos around the grave to see if the soil had been disturbed. People would also even guard the grave at night. 
The morning clothing and accessory industry, obviously, was very popular. Not only did people don the specific black clothing, but there was also black umbrellas, handkerchiefs, and of course the memento mori. So all of these accessories that people would need or want during this time. Because being in mourning for a year to two years, that's a long time. Something else that was very popular at this time was something called the mourning doll. The doll would have been made from wax and often a very close likeness to the infant or child that had passed. The doll would be dressed in their clothing and often had their actual hair, or at least in part. They would often be photographed with the deceased and would be placed in a replica coffin. Since infants and young children often died of diseases that were really tragic, it would often leave them looking pretty drained and sometimes even disfigured. So the mourning doll was to portray the child in a peaceful rest, looking as if they just had fallen asleep. These were very popular for a time, and I'll of course put some examples up on the blog for you to see. They're pretty amazing. Another interesting fad were death kits. So this was basically a playset that would train little girls on how to throw a funeral and how to mourn. Yep, that is a real thing. It would include a doll with a coffin, so the child could practice dressing it and putting it out for visitation. The last thing in the business of death that I wanted to talk about are professional mourners. Yeah, again, this was a real thing. People would be hired to walk behind the carriages and cry silently. And of course silently, because in Victorian times it was very unsightly to weep loudly and openly. So this profession was born out of a competition, actually, of the elite, of who had the most forlorn mourners at their funeral. All in all, death was very superstitious and a very lucrative business in the Victorian era. And the customs that appeared during this time only fueled many businesses, I'm sure. Lower class families would forgo food and other necessities in order to put away small amounts of money into a funeral fund. And ironically, this caused the deaths of many of these people. So this brings us to the end of the episode. I hope you found this topic as interesting as I do. Now, don't forget to check out Facebook and Instagram, as I said earlier, to enter into the Halloween giveaway. So at Real Scary Podcast on Facebook and at Real Scary Podcast on Instagram. Super easy. Thank you so much to Caitlin from the Dalnavert Museum. Be sure to check them out both online and in person if you're able to. As always, remember to tell them where you heard about them. Check out the blog for this episode at realscarypodcast.ca. I'll have many examples of Victorian customs that we've spoken about. But until next time, this is your friendly neighborhood host, Elise. Elise.